version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now to get right to the point. When you do develop a cool new tool, the opportunity and the amount of scientists who are desperate for data from this thing. So we see this quite a lot. There's only so many opportunities to get that thing down there. There is a wealth of scientific data you could acquire. How do you organize who gets what, what the priorities are. Is it a battle of personalities? So I, I always think back to when you've got your mitts on an ROV. So we, we did a cruise to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge using the ISIS ROV. And this was an incredible opportunity for a lot of people to do things firsthand. They'd all sampled remotely and, and sort of done trolls and things. So it's great to actually have eyes and hands in the deep sea in order to do your work. But there was maybe 30 scientists on board then. And there's only one ROV. And even when it's doing sort of 24-hour operations, it can only do so much at any one time. And you can't be totally democratic. You can't just say, you know, everyone gets two hours because a little bit of data sometimes is, is less use than, than sort of none at all. So if you want to do something quantitative, you want to do, say, transect, you need enough data. You need to fly enough lines to have a good understanding of that area and to sort of test your hypothesis. But the really difficult thing then is, is of course, the poor pilots there with 10 scientists sort of watching what's going on, because it's incredibly exciting, and you are following this transect, and you catch sight of something just, just to the sort of corner of the field of view. And there'll be some expert who is totally up on those animals. And if that is something important, that is something new. And do you deviate from the transect? Do you go and have a look? And, and where do you sort of draw that line? Because then you're not getting anything done. You're, you're sort of kids in a, in a sweet shop, and you're just getting distracted and charging around. And it's really difficult to actually stay on mission when we're all so excited by this stuff, but excited about different stuff in different ways. And you've got this one singular asset. So politically, it can be really difficult. An even bigger opportunity for a bun fight must be with the, the current space rovers. Think about how many different scientific groups want data from that. How diplomatic they have to be. I made a NASA friend on Twitter and I'm going to ask him. To talk about managing a high value asset and ensuring that everyone gets what they want without a fight breaking out, I'm chatting with Evan Hilgerman, mechanical engineer and rover planning at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, thanks for coming on, Evan. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Tom. I'm really excited to talk to you today. It's great to have you on. We've had a little back and forth on Twitter, and I was looking forward to an opportunity to drag you on. You came across my radar, and I was like, that looks like an interesting person. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna... I, I appreciate that. We have parallels between space exploration and deep sea exploration. And as we're going into these podcasts and digging into that further, it feels like there's more and more in common in how we operate and the, the sort of issues that we have. And one of them is we've got this singular submarine. It's the only one in existence currently. But the same when we've got an ROV, we've got one incredibly capable, incredibly valuable asset. And we have a whole team of scientists with varying personalities who all want very different things from it. And there's, there's only so much hours in the day. So one of your roles is planning the 
Paths of the Mars Curiosity rover, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so as part of my role as a rover planner for the, the Curiosity mission, uh, we're basically responsible for all the mobility and robot arm work uh, that the rover does uh, you know, day-to-day on Mars. Uh, so we're generally uh, interacting with various people on the science team to basically uh, maximize the science output of the rover and minimize any, any risk to the hardware. And you guys have an even bigger hurdle than, than we face in that there's a massive time lag for you, isn't there? Yeah, indeed. Uh, round-trip time to Mars, uh, traveling at the speed of light. So the speed our communications travel at is anywhere from 4 to 22 minutes, if I remember right. It's not something where we can joystick the rover around or control it uh, with any semblance of real-time operations. Generally, the way we do things is that we put together a day or two of instructions for the rover here on Earth, and then we send that out to Mars. It, it'll execute uh, what we tell it to do. Um, and then we'll hear back a day or two later uh, how things went. And you kind of repeat that over and over again, yeah, to operate the Mars rover. So, for example, uh, yesterday I was on shift, you know, I drove the rover, if you will, I put together a set of instructions uh, that it's going to execute, and then that data from that drive will come back sometime this evening, and I will be anxiously awaiting it. <laughs> That's the first thing that springs to my mind, is like, after a few years of doing this, do you ease into it, or is it an incredibly high-stress job? Because I, I'm a worrier, and I have autonomous gear that I throw over the side, and then that <laughs> night I'm like... Was that bit tangled? Did that yeah, did that yeah. seem right? Did that look okay? Yeah, we we have little things like that. It depends on the plan, what we're doing, and how complicated it is. Uh, so some days we're doing things fairly straightforward, you know, from a driving perspective. Maybe there's there's not much in the way. It's an easy drive. Some days you're doing really complex and challenging things. And those are definitely the days where you know, I'm waiting around for uh, our downlink, the data coming back from Mars to get to Earth, and really curious to see what it might look like. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think it's a similar mentality there regarding anxiety around uh, seeing how your hardware performed. So you've got no tips. There's nothing to help me sleep at no, night. No, not. <laughs> I've gone great so far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always the little things too. It's like when we're putting together these plans, there's a lot of thought that goes into it and multiple people are looking at it. But then there's always like, wait, did I close that camera lens at the end? You know, did I, did we do that? I'm not sure. So uh, there, there are occasional stress dreams or moments where you're going to bed and it's like, oh, I really hope we didn't forget to do X operation. <laughs> and, and that's very much what it looks like. Uh, the commands that we're sending to the rover, they aren't in any traditional sort of computer language. It's basically special sequencing language that the rover is able to speak. So we're basically sending it individual commands. There's some number of commands that it knows how to do and knows what those mean. Very cool. And you've got different levels of, obviously, there's quite a lot of intelligence in the rover itself. And there's almost manual control right the way up to some quite advanced decision making on the rover's end, isn't there? When we're driving the rover, we have a few different modes that we can drive in. The simplest is what we call blind driving, which is basically we're just telling the rover to like close your eyes and go 10 meters forward or turn here and then go in that direction. Um, that's great because it's simple, but it's not very accurate. Uh, one issue we have is what we call rover slip. Say if you're going through sandy soil or a little bit uphill, the wheels might spin a little bit um, and the rover might think it went, you know, 10 meters but they actually only want eight or something like that. Uh, the advantage is that blind mode is relatively quick. The rover doesn't have to like stop and take pictures or anything like that. So it's our fastest, but also the least accurate mode of driving we have. The one that we use most frequently is called visual odometry, which is when the rover will go along and we might tell it to go, you know, 10 meters forward and it'll stop every meter and basically take a picture of the train. By building up that series of images, it can basically tell exactly how far it's moved in between those drive steps. So it's a bit slower. We have to stop and take pictures along the way but it's 
it's much more accurate. So if the scientists decide, hey, there's a really cool rock over there, uh, and we want to go poke it with the instruments on the, on the end of the <laughs> robot arm, uh, we can approach that pretty accurately. I think that's what Casey adopted for the, the Orpheus program as well. And then there's a third and final sort yeah. of most advanced, but but most time and processing heavy. Exactly, exactly. That's the, the auto navigation. We typically only like to drive as far as we can see on Mars. Uh, so the rovers all have a mass uh, sitting up on top of the rover. That's the head-looking thing. And there's a bunch of cameras on there that can basically make a 3D map of the environment. So stereo pairs of cameras. Uh, they'll build up uh, a stereo map. And normally, the, the range we get can be anywhere from like 30 to 100 meters. And we're okay driving on top of that. But we don't just want to like send the rover off the edge, what we call our mesh. So we, we, we don't just command that open loop. If we need to go further like that, we'll use AutoNav, which basically means that we can't see the train. But if the rover's driving along, it can. So it'll stop and take a series of, of pictures basically in front of it, build up what we call a hazard map, so it's able to look for things like tall rocks and other hazards, and it'll basically start plotting its own course uh, to avoid those hazards. Uh, we use that uh, capability somewhat uh, infrequently on Curiosity. Yeah, the AutoNav is very power and time intensive because we have to take so many pictures and do a lot of computation. It takes a long time for those drives to execute. And that also means it takes a lot more power to get a given distance. Uh, I was just going to add on, this is all on Curiosity. Uh, we have to, we basically have to stop to take pictures and think. Uh, one of the big advancements on the Perseverance rover, which of course just landed this uh, spring, is that it's able to do something called thinking while driving. Uh, so instead of having to stop and take pictures and think about it for a couple minutes every meter, it's basically just going to be able to keep rolling, take pictures, do all the calculations while the rover's in motion. So it'll actually be able to drive a lot faster, and you'll probably see those capabilities being used more on Perseverance than, than what we have on Curiosity. I, I was wondering as I was reading about this stuff, actually, that you know, you've know you got a whole sort of ecosystem, really, and you've got an energy budget. And any processing, any image processing, any creating a mosaic and things like that, it's all processing of cycles and that's going to have an energy requirement yeah we have a, a very a limited and a very fixed amount of power on curiosity's voice perseverance uh, our power source is actually there's a big chunk of plutonium in the back of the rovers uh, that's basically putting off heat and we're able to convert that heat energy into electrical power that's uh, you know great because it's a very predictable amount of power but also relatively limited the power source for curiosity when it landed it put off something like 100 watts of power so it's, it's basically running off you know a bright light bulb worth of power uh, now we're, of course we're using that to charge a battery and then most of the operations of the rover are uh, you know run off the battery but that's kind of the order of magnitude of, of our power source and yeah it's it's limited so a lot of uh, our activities uh, might be limited by one of the other engineers is one of the systems engineers on the operations team saying like hey we only have enough power to drive 30 meters today and also get done the the other things that we want to do so that's as far as we're going to go because we just don't have have power to do to do more than that it's interesting that there's this like trickle essentially and it's filling a tank and you've got to sort of budget exactly that yeah. tank and you can, <laughs> is there any solar top up or is it all all the no it's all battery? it's all nuclear oh wow um, uh, perseverance and, and curiosity mars exploration rovers spirit and opportunity were both solar powered uh, that's actually a really interesting story because originally uh, those missions uh, were only planned to last 90 days on mars because of the solar panels uh, everybody thought they would get covered in dust and and after about 90 days, they just wouldn't have enough power to drive anymore. But what they found is that the panels were getting periodically cleared off by the wind on Mars. But they actually think the rovers were occasionally getting hit by a little dust devil or something, which would clean off the solar panels uh, and basically 
keep the rovers going longer. So Spirit and Opportunity, they, they were originally 90-day missions. Uh, because of a surprise benefit, Spirit ended up lasting six years, and I think uh, Opportunity Jeez. lasted something like 13 years on Mars. You know, it's orders of magnitude beyond uh, what the initial design life was. It's suddenly the names take on new meaning, especially yeah, Opportunity. Yeah. It's like, Indeed. hey, this thing's still working. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting hearing the stories from the people running the rovers at the time because they were expecting a 98-day mission and then it just kind of kept going and going and going. (laughs) And it wasn't a hard 90 days. It was like an an estimated 90 days. People were probably bracing for less. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was basically the mission was sold to NASA is a 90-day mission on the surface of Mars. I think they got their money's worth out of that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're hoping that perseverance and curiosity will last at least as long as well. They were basically built nominally for a one Martian year mission. Uh, that, that's the initial, what's called the primary mission. And the big reason for that is that ensures that they're designed to survive all of the seasons on Mars. So one year on Mars is about two years on Earth. But if you can survive, you know, one season on Mars, why not two or three? Yeah. Uh, although the, the primary mission for these rovers is a couple of Earth years, the hope and certainly the intent is that they would last uh, much longer on the surface. You know, a lot of the big hazards for the rovers are things like thermocycles. So on Mars, it gets really cold at night, right? I forget what the overnight temperatures is. Something like, you know, minus 80 and minus 100 degrees Celsius. Daytime highs might get up to around freezing. So you have this huge temperature variation that the rovers are going through every day. From the, the engineering side, one of the most yeah, stressing delicate components just, love yeah, that. Yeah, the thermocycles, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, all, that, all those wires and all the harnessing and the electrical connections, you know, there. Um, Everything becoming brittle and yeah, exactly, expanding exactly. and contracting jeez uh-huh. oh, so it's, it's quite a challenge from an engineering perspective to make sure everything will survive i've got a sense of like a a cycle to this routine so even though you've got a, a 22 minute delay mm-hmm. do you have sort of times where there's no communication due to where the planets are positioned it, it feels like you you've got a daily cycle here almost so ideally the way that the, the rover operation would work is that basically while it's daytime on earth it would be nighttime on mars so while the rover's sleeping it's generally not doing anything at night we're basically putting together instructions and then at about 9 a.m on mars we send all the commands to the rover for the next day it goes to work during the martian day while we're asleep on earth and then in its evening it's sends you back information in in the morning on Earth, and you're basically able to redo that over and over again. I know that's challenging because a Mars day is not quite the same length of time as an Earth day. I was going to ask, are you living on Martian time? I I am not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's about a 40-minute difference between a Mars day and an Earth day. Uh, Mars day is a little bit longer. Uh, So the first 90 days of a mission, the operations team will actually live on Mars time. Uh, So the Perseverance operations team was living on... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They were living on Mars time from, you know, February when it landed until sometime in May. That's, you know, very good for the rover operations because you're able to plan every day, you know, and, and react to things relatively quickly. It's generally not as good for the people operating the rovers. <laughs> they limit the duration of time uh, that that's done for. Later in the mission, uh, we'll transition to a, a schedule where it's, it's more similar to, you know, a normal Earth workday. Um, and what that means is sometimes uh, we basically have to plan two Martian days at a time instead of just one. Or on, you know, Curiosity's been going around long enough, we'll plan an entire weekend's worth of activities for the rover, which might be three or four days of activities. And then the only time where we just, like, can't communicate with the rover 
is something called conjunction, which is actually coming up this fall for Mars. But uh, it's basically a period in its orbit when Mars is on the opposite side of the sun from Earth. And we can't <laughs> we can't send radio signals through the sun. So there's basically a two and a half week blackout period where we are yeah, unable to noisy. talk to the rovers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does that feel like almost a summer break and it'll come out the other side with fully charged batteries and, uh, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you've got loads of energy uh, budget. rested up. <laughs> a full battery, if nothing else, because the, the activities that it's going to be doing, well, we can't pay attention, aren't going to be as energy intensive. So it's just going to be doing a lot of like environmental measurements. We do dust devil surveys. The cameras will uh, swivel around and basically look for dust devils in the environment. So that things like that are what it's doing and we can't talk to it for a while. So yeah, nice long-term fixed point environmental study. That's cool. Exactly, yeah. It's amazing the things that are currently being achieved in both of our spheres, but ever looking forward, universe is a tantalizing place with lots of interesting things to explore. What are the things that are really exciting you right now? And what's the sort of future technology that's going to allow us to do some new stuff? Uh, from the engineering side, you're seeing a lot of increase in autonomous systems and also uh, making things smaller and cheaper and more efficient. So from the autonomous side, like our our rover does have autonomous capabilities, both perseverance and uh, curiosity. We talked about that with the Autonav. Uh, but generally, they're just following some fixed set of instructions. And then there are a bunch of uh, reactive safety checks. So if something goes a little bit wrong, the rover will just stop what it's doing and and radio back to Earth and wait for new instructions. Uh, you're seeing a lot of research into more autonomous systems, so uh, robots that can actually survey an environment without necessarily getting feedback from Earth and just take a high-level science goal, find all the interesting rocks in this area, map out this region for us. And then by doing that, you're able to cover a lot more ground to get more science return and a lot less time because you don't have the, these constant feedback loops from Earth. Uh, you're seeing some proposals for like small rovers on the moon. A lot of people are looking at lunar technologies now because there's a big push to return to the moon. And instead of having this big billion-dollar flagship class mission, which is what Perseverance and Curiosity are, what if we had two dozen of these small little rovers, a little bit bigger than, let's say, besides the little RC car or something like that, and they, all, they can all kind of rove around and independently explore, but also talk to each other and make kind of a network. And then what can you do with that sort of distributed sensing network compared to having one large rover on the ground? It's a different philosophy and you almost need to adjust how you're gathering the data and what sort of exactly. data you're, you're exactly. after. Yeah, and from the science side, it's very different since, like, instead of having this mass spectrometer that weighs, you know, 800 pounds on Mars, I'm going to have a dozen things. All they can do is tell the color of the rock or something like that. What useful information can you get from that? And a lot of times, lower fidelity data, but over a wide region and a lot of data points can be just as useful as having one uh, very high value uh, lander. We are finding exactly the same philosophy with our work because it was technically very difficult. You'd have this single very high value asset and you would try and cram everything onto yeah. it and do the do the best you could but the arguments that we're bringing up is there's only so much you can do with that vehicle mm -hmm. and if yeah, it's it lost, be in one place at a time so. yeah and, and measuring sort of one set of things so mm -hmm. you do need to start with that single incredible asset these things aren't sort of rival groups i think you you have sure. to do yeah, they're, they're you do the single film first sure. as much as these distributed systems are great mm -hmm. 
that comes after you've cracked it and then yeah. it's about miniaturization. And, so and you can cool. definitely pair them, which I've seen done a bit in, in the ocean community and we're doing on Mars now, where maybe you have one smaller, cheaper thing that is going along with the big expensive thing. And, and that's what you're seeing with the Ingenuity helicopter working with Perseverance right now. Ingenuity originally was a technology demonstration add-on mission, so it wasn't baseline as any part of the science mission of Perseverance. Now it's been working so well that they're actually sending the helicopter out in front of the rover to scout out terrain, <laughs> take pictures, you know, see what looks most interesting, analyze the traversability uh, of terrain for the rover. Now that small helicopter, which was you know this cheap add-on uh, device, is now becoming a very valuable portion of the mission from a science perspective as well. So I like that mentality too, where it's like we don't need to have only a $2 billion flagship or smaller swarm of super cheap objects. We can have them work together and really maximize the output of these missions. You'd think that you guys would sort of be using the absolute sort of pinnacle technology, but is it <laughs> true that you guys tend to favor actually quite old processors with really, really known parameters? Is yeah. there an old Apple processor in one of the rovers right now? Yeah, we have a both a blessing and a curse called heritage technology. The prevailing wisdom is that if it's flown in space before and it worked, we can fly it in space again. <laughs> that can lead to uh, this kind of troublesome loop where it's really hard to integrate and infuse new technologies in spacecraft the issue about processors. I believe the processor, the main computer for Curiosity, was originally designed in the 1990s. There are all sorts of parallels you can make for how much more processing power your cell phone has than our Mars rover. And there are a couple different reasons for that. When it comes to processing, we're really worried about radiation damage when we're in deep space. Uh, you know, Mars doesn't have the same protective shell that Earth does. So in the 90s, there was a particular computer chip developed to be very radiation hardened, and NASA put a lot of time and money into developing that and to try and remake that technology and requalify it for space, but with you know, more processing power is something that's very expensive and time-consuming to do. So the easiest thing to do if you actually want to launch something into space, which is our goal, is to basically use the, the old technology. It leads to some really interesting side effects as well. One of my original jobs at JPL, I'm actually in the technology infusion group, which is a really cool title, I think. You guys have such good titles. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. But yeah, part of my original job description was basically to try and identify new and upcoming technologies and actually get them infused into flight missions to try and get past what we call the technology valley of death. That's an actual term. But uh, basically what, what you see happening is there are a lot of people at JPL and elsewhere developing new technologies that show a lot of promise. They get up to a certain level of maturity, but then it's really hard to actually get them on the flight missions at that point because everybody just wants to use you know the same thing that's worked well in the past so part of my job is identifying what are the highest value new technologies and how do we actually get those onto flight missions and i understand both sides of it it's like we're never going to advance unless we embrace new stuff but the tried and tested and proven in such a harsh environment these parallels are fascinating because we come against the same stuff I'll notice a new piece of technology and I'll be just like, Alan, Alan, come on, look at this. This is this is half the size and it's so much cheaper. And and he's like, but we know what we've got works. And if it's a flotation device or something that could implode, it's like this is new tech. We know when a glass float looks like it needs to be retired. We we're sort of part of that as well. Like we've got our eye in. We we've had the bad experiences to know when something isn't looking right. But yeah, when we take on something new, there's a learning curve and there's a there's a risk to that. Definitely. 
Well, retire some of that risk by trying to do like technology demonstrations in space as opposed to being part of the main science mission. And that's, uh, again, going back to the perseverance in the helicopter ingenuity example. Ingenuity is a technology demonstration. The whole intent of that was just to show that a helicopter can fly on Mars. And if that's the only thing it did, that would have been a success. But the, the whole idea of flying ingenuity is that by proving this technology out on a small scale on Mars... Uh, you're basically opening the door up to larger and more capable missions. Going back to a little bit of history, you saw that with the Mars rovers too, where the very first rover that we landed on Mars uh, was a little device called Sojourner. It was about the size of a microwave that landed in 1997 as part of the, the Mars Pathfinder mission. They didn't do a lot, you know, just kind of drove around in, in the region of the lander, poked some rocks and whatnot, did a little bit of science. And that was also a technology demonstration mission. That was just an add-on to the primary lander with the idea that if this works, it'll really pay the way for larger and more ambitious rovers. You know, we have a one-ton nuclear power, well, we have two, uh, you know, one-ton nuclear power rovers on Mars. That technology demonstration was very successful. And part of the idea with this helicopter is that by demonstrating this technology, we could, in a similar way, work our way towards larger and more capable flying vehicles on Mars as well, which would be really spectacular, I think. We're seeing the first generation of now proven technology, so we're going to see a lot more choppers in space. Yeah. (laughs) There's so much we can learn from each other. I think we're facing very similar problems. I think there's a lot in terms of management and in almost the personality of our communities, we could exchange quite a lot. And I'm really excited to see evidence that we are working together. There are projects that go hand in hand Thanks so much, Evan, for having a chat. I really enjoyed that. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hello, this is oceanographer Don Walsh. I'd like to talk about the relationship between NASA, the Antarctic, and space exploration. While there are critical concerns for freshwater availability on planet Earth, water in all its forms, liquid, ice, and vapor, is ubiquitous in our cosmos. And where there's water, there can be life. There are nine oceans in our solar system. However, Earth is the only planet with liquid water on its surface. The other oceans are found under thick covers of surface ice. If both liquid and frozen water are counted, then Earth ranks fifth out of the nine in volume of its oceans. Most of the solar system's oceans are on satellites, that is, moons of the planet's Our world ocean on planet Earth contains 321 million cubic miles of salt water, a huge volume considering that all 7 billion people on Earth could fit into just one cubic mile. In our solar system, the largest ocean is on Ganymede, a moon of Jupiter. It has an estimated water volume eight times greater than our world ocean. Most impressive are the calculated ice thickness of 62 miles and a depth of 93 miles. The most studied moon is Europa, the fourth largest of Jupiter's 79 moons. In the mid-1990s, Europa was one of the earliest places NASA studied using flybys of spacecraft looking for water and life in our solar system. While smaller than our moon, it ranks fourth in water volume of the nine solar system oceans. Europa's icy surface is about 10 miles thick which covers an ocean 60 miles deep. It's estimated to have twice the water volume found on Earth. Direct measurements of these extraterrestrial oceans are not possible without the use of landers such as the Curiosity family that have visited Mars. But remote data from spacecraft flybys, land-based telescopes, and several other analytical means have helped in gathering data. 
Using this multi-path approach, it's been possible to infer a great deal about presence of water on the body studied. NASA has been a serious investor in the development and deployment of through-ice probes for the lander. An example is in the Antarctic, the one place on Earth where there's thick ice cover over an isolated ocean. At the Russian Vostok station in East Antarctic, the ice thickness is up to nearly two miles thick. Under the ice is a 3,300-foot deep Lake Vostok, the 19th largest lake in the world. It's about the size of Lake Ontario between Canada and the United States. In 2014, a prototype probe penetrated the ice into the lake, and there it found evidence of life, life which may have been sequestered there for nearly 15 million years. However, Lake Vostok is only one of about 350 lakes beneath the Antarctic ice cover. So there is much research to be done by NASA and other space agencies as we try to learn more about our solar system. More important than finding and assessing quantities of water is the search for life forms in the solar system. For life to occur, the essentials are water and organic compounds together with an environment that helps to incubate origins of life. NASA's astrobiology program, begun in the 1990s, is supporting extensive work to detect signs of life. Under this program, in 2018, they launched the Oceans Across Space and Time project to find and assess water in our solar system. In summary, the best estimate is that the volume of liquid water in our solar system is 25 to 50 times greater than the water on planet Earth. But it's all a work in progress on this frontier of exploration. If NASA's plans to send multiple landers to planetary moons in the next decade are successful, then perhaps a new type of scientist may evolve, planetary oceanographer. Well, that's all for now, and thank you for listening. And that was a pressurized version of one of our longer episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full length episode, just match the episode numbers and you'll be able to find the full length version in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. Right